Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today's episode is with New York Times bestselling author and therapist, Catherine Woodward Thomas, who is most known for her conscious uncoupling work. And today we're actually talking about that. What is conscious uncoupling? And not just if you are planning on or have been divorced But in fact, we're also talking about how to fight well, how to consciously model for your kids what it means to really see another person, imagine their perspective, give them space to feel felt, all of the things that can help connect people. And importantly, if you are currently going through a divorce, this is not meant to replace a mental health professional, but there are programs for conscious uncoupling and you can actually check out the show notes and I'll give you a link. And this is really about the transformation of a family, not breaking up families. And that's a very important distinction in conscious uncoupling. If you enjoy this episode, I would love for you to subscribe If you have not had a chance, rate this podcast and write a little review. And thank you so much for being part of this community. I would say a lot of people have heard of conscious uncoupling at this point, but don't necessarily know what it is. And I would love for you to talk about that and how this consciousness is relevant, whether you're uncoupling or coupled. Beautiful. I mean, I, I love that Gwyneth popped it into the lexicon. <laughs> that that was amazing. And actually, when she did that, it kind of introduced a whole new possibility. Because before that, we had just, you know, we we all know that breakups are hostile, painful, and and that people get a little crazy in a way that can really create some bad repercussions for them for their partner and of course for their kids Mm -hmm. and the consequences that they have to live with for many years are quite severe. So I think we've all come to accept that as the norm. And when we're talking about conscious uncoupling, just the very title kind of caught everybody off guard. And of course we all made fun of Gwyneth, myself included, oh, by the way, because, you know, she's fun to make fun of, but she did a great service 
because it did introduce a new concept. And then since then, it was one of those things where it's an idea whose time had come that we were ready for that. I mean, so many of us grew up as the product of toxic divorces. You know, divorce was not a big thing in America until the late 60s when Reagan signed no fault into being in California. He introduced no fault divorce. Before that, it was much harder to get divorced. Oh, I did not know that. So in the 70s, there was a divorce revolution. And that's when the family court system got created. It was initially created because it was clogging up all the courts, how many people were rushing to the courts now, because you didn't have to have somebody cheat on you or beat you in order to get a divorce. Uh-huh. But what happened is that nobody, nobody really understood the repercussions of when you, when you divorce, you essentially, if you do it badly, you essentially leave your children emotionally homeless. And the 70s and the 80s are known for being the least parented generation ever, because that was, they were all the latchkey kids. Right. The moms went to work. You know, they got alienated from their parents, that the parents' inability to work things out together, misunderstanding that there's any repercussions, assuming that because children are still functioning, that they're fine. So now we've all grown up and we got, hey, you know, a lot of money that I'm spending on my therapy now because actually I wasn't really fine. So we don't want to do that to our kids. So I think when Gwyneth popped it, even though we like to make fun of Gwyneth, it spoke to people because it was like a big yes, collectively, like, yeah, can we please do this better? I mean, amicable divorce had had been around before that. Everybody would aspire to an amicable divorce, but very few people can actually do it. Yeah. Why, why is that so? Because we're kind of hardwired to stay bonded. And when we get separated, we, we don't have the development yet. We haven't evolved as a species to do that well. So we're kind of hardwired to go into that very primal threat place as severely as if a thousand years ago, if you wandered away from your tribe, you would probably die. Mm -hmm. We really haven't changed all that much. So when somebody leaves us, when they betray us, and suddenly the the family is no longer what it was, They, they betray the contract of relationship between us. They've lied, they've stolen, They've done something, you know, it's almost feels in that moment, certainly irreparable. The break in belonging is so severe. And so we will, you know, we will go into that primal threat place. Our brains will experience rejection actually as physical pain. That's the same area in the brain that lights up when somebody smacks you or hits you is what we feel is what happens. It lights up when we feel rejected So all sorts of primal things are going on. And even the most, you know, decent people behave Mm -hmm. very badly at the end of love. Even if you're a trusting good person, you assume, you know, that you live in a friendly universe and suddenly the rug is pulled out from under you and you want to, you know, make sure you have enough to feed your children. And so you go to war. It's very easy to go to war. Yes. So what conscious uncoupling is, are the actual steps that I think of it as the bumpers at the bowling alley. First step, how do you deal with your big emotions without acting out? How do you transform those negative emotions of rage, uh, you know, you know, endless sorrow, uh, despair, uh, you know, anguish, all of the things that we go through, guilt, 
you know, all the things we go through at the end of a relationship, how do you actually turn that into something positive? How do you transform the negative emotions into a force for positive change? So that's step one of conscious uncoupling because we, we start where we are. And step one is really about being able to, for example, sponsor the, the good that's underneath the rage, which is, you know, my rights have been violated and I have a right to be treated well. That's the good part of rage is that we actually have something that we are, we are now so angry that we will no longer settle for less. We will no longer lie to ourselves. We will no longer tolerate being disrespected. I mean, that's the good part. So we have to turn that into a commitment we make to ourselves moving forward, an intention that we set and actually harness those negative emotions for good. I love the idea of acknowledging the value of all of our emotions and that that has that that even the negative ones have or what we're calling the negative ones the more challenging ones have this positive component of me- the message that it's giving us that's so important that's such a great step one yeah i mean even depression you know this deep despair that we can go into What's the value of that? Well, it's really recognizing how tender we all are and how precious our bonds are. And when we violate kind of the rules of integrity with each other, that the cost is so great. Mm -hmm. So that can even be turned into a commitment to living with greater integrity, great, you know, honesty, more honesty, wholesome motives. Don't get into relationships for the wrong reason. Don't choose someone because you think they're going to pay your bills. Mm -hmm. You know, all the kind of subtle, unwholesome motives that we all have sometimes. Mm -hmm. So there's there's an up-leveling that's wanting to happen. We have to look for that and sponsor that. So that is step one. One of the things that I think people misunderstood when Gwyneth and Chris kind of initially kicked that into the lexicon. And, you know, since then, Chris Chris has been very transparent about his struggles and how painful that was. But it looked like they were just kind of this sunny Hollywood couple. Exactly. You know, doing the Hollywood thing. And so I think it got kind of mixed in with, oh, it's just some new age cure. But it's, it's not at all. I actually wrote it for the individual who was really suffering from a very heavy heart. I wrote it for people who were in a relationship that was kind of stuck where they felt like, you know, at any moment it could fall apart, but then it goes on for weeks and months and even years. So, you know, two, what do they say? Too, too good to leave, too bad to stay, those kind of stuck places. And I wrote it for someone, you know, there's a difference between somebody who's being left and a person who is leaving. So step one is almost really for the person who's being left, although the person who's leaving probably has a lot of big guilt. They're not as devastated because they have had time internally to adjust to their new identity outside the relationship. They've been creating that life, you know, in secret a little bit. And also there's information in their feeling guilty, like for their future choices. For their future choices, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the guilt. So the guilt is is interesting to sort through because some of us feel guilty that for things that are not really ours to feel guilty about. That's mm. the codependence, mm-hmm. right? If we're codependent, we're being overly responsible for other people's lives. So you know, but but to hold that, and to and again, it comes back to integrity. Like, what's the gift? 
that's opening up there is I've got to live in, in greater alignment with the truth of my soul. And if I've been lying to someone out of a need to somehow try and make this better for them when it really wasn't mine to do, mm-hmm. you know, it, it hasn't served them. Really, actually, it hasn't served them. Or, organizing around the weakest parts of other people never really helps them in the long run. So, you know, if we're feeling guilty because we've kind of known for a long time, but we've been pretending and trying, you know, all of that stuff has to get cleaned up. There's some place deep inside of you that is yearning to live in greater alignment with the truth of who you are and what you came here to create and contribute. So this is why I say, you know, a broken heart, it's kind of like life has broken you open. Those of us who've been kind of skirting around our own development or even sitting, you know, in therapy for years, just talking about our issues, but not really doing a lot of changing. It's Mm. almost like life has you upside down and is shaking every lie out of your pocket you've ever been living with. You, You really can't go anywhere other than this work. So that's the you know, that's the, what do they call it? The, the terrible grace of God is, you know, this, this is a, one of those moments, but your life really can change for the better. I mean, all breakups are, are a crossroads. Many go on to live a lesser life in the aftermath, um, aftermath of a broken heart. You know, we've met those folks way mm-hmm. too often. I've met a lot of people who 10, 20 years later, never dated again or we're still stalking their ex. I mean, I come from a crazy family, so I'm the perfect person to do conscious uncoupling because I had a stepfather who divorced my mother, my, her third husband, by the way. And he oh, wow. divorced my mother when I was 25. When I was 55, when I was 60, he was still suing her, trying to get more oh. money from her 35 years later. So I know that the time doesn't heal all wounds. We actually have to do work. We have to do work, not just we have to do work. depend on time. Right. So wise and true. So conscious, so the five-step process. So the second step, and it kind of goes organically into it, is really finding a way to process the pain, process the, the horrors of what has been done to you or what you have done to another or both. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to process that in a way that leaves you actually more capable of love on the other side of it. So most of the time when we go to, it, it, the, the name of the step is reclaiming your life, and you're, you're reclaiming your power in your life. And, and the reclamation of your power always has to do with self-responsibility. Responsibility and power go hand in hand. But when we're looking at being, how am I responsible for the fact that that person cheated, right? How am I? Well, you're not responsible in the sense that it's your fault. But if you look at your 3%, I like to say it's 97% the other person, but what's your 3%? Okay. Uh So your 3% might be, I knew something was wrong and I didn't bring it up or I just kept turning away or I, I had this feeling, I dismissed my knowing, or I, I, I married this person in spite of the fact that I knew they cheated on every other person. You know, I just didn't set up the structures for myself, or this is how I'm lying to myself. They were lying to me, but so I lied to myself. Mm. So we have to look at the 3%. So it's very easy when you're traumatized, and relational trauma is one of the highest levels of trauma we, we can go through in a lifetime. So it's very high trauma. And in trauma, 
there is the uh, the mechanism that the psyche has of needing to tell the story over and over again to try and integrate it, to try and make sense of it, to get a sense of control back. But the problem is we're telling the story from a victimized, powerless perspective. And mm-hmm. so it's rewounding us, rewounding us, weakening us, weakening us. This is where we have, you know, we're in the danger zone. This is where we're going to forget ourselves and run through the child's or, or kid's college account because we're so insistent that, you know, whatever it is that we're fighting about in that moment, you know, that I win here. So this is a danger zone. So what I say to people is, you know, you have to validate those feelings. We have all those feelings. They're absolutely spot on, valid. We're not trying to take anything away from you. So just, you know, and and then go back to step one and hold those emotions. Because I actually teach people how to hold your emotions from a deeper center so that you're not just you know, wildly on fire with your emotions, but you're actually mm-hmm. able to name them and label them and hold them from a place of compassion in yourself. So in, in, in step two, I'm helping people to look at your 3% in a way that's not shame-based. Because normally when we go to look at our 3%, we're looking through the lens of there's something wrong with me. And we'll go right indoors like, I slow self-esteem because my mom did this, my dad didn't do that. Or, you know, or any number of stories that we tell. But if we tell it from that perspective, we are now victimized by our own consciousness. We're still victimized. I teach people how to actually look at your choices and look at the actions you took or did not take. Period. No judgment on it. Usually, you know, it was some adaptive strategy from childhood, but we're not responsible for what happened back then, but we are responsible for evolving ourselves forward because the consequence of these behaviors, people pleasing, disappearing yourself, putting, you know, being outside your body and over there with the other person to the point where you don't even know what you feel and need anymore. All Mm -hmm. of that stuff are things that we need to correct to make sure that this could never happen again. Right. So that's step two is helping to reflect on yourself outside of shame. And then you're going to go right into step three. They kind of have this organic part yeah. to it. It goes pretty simply into step three, which is break the pattern, heal your heart. And that goes into then, well, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. Why did I make that choice? What do I believe about myself at the deepest level? And what am I making this breakup mean about me? See, breakups, you have, you, you said, I've heard people say, I wish they had died because it wouldn't have been this painful. Uh, yeah. Right? Like the fact that they're walking around and then not choosing me or worse yet, hating on me, blaming me with this yeah. story about me. It's so horrible. Now I just have to apologize to everybody listening. Who's actually lost somebody. Cause that's a whole different. So forgive me for even suggesting that. So I don't want to be disrespectful to that pain, but it is a different kind of pain. Mm-hmm. So there's the pain of loss, but then there's the insult to identity. I went from someone who was chosen and special, and now I'm not valuable, I'm discarded, I'm not wanted, I'm nothing to this person. Mm-hmm. So that lodges, because beliefs are relational, that lodges as kind of a, a validation of a very old story that happened way back when I call it your source fracture, mm. the original break in your heart. So we go back there, we identify the story. We wake ourselves up out of the trance of the story. We connect with where it is in our bodies. I'm not a big fan of 
like the vague unconscious. It lives in the unconscious because I have no access to that. But if I go into my body and I say, well, where is that in my body? And how old is that part of me? What's the age of that self? Doesn't have to be, you know, perfect or valid. I mean, you just, you just ask yourself and some age will pop up. I have always had trouble finding things in my body. It's interesting when I talk to my children about how they feel, I I'm conscious of the fact that I'm a neck up person. Like I was raised neck up. We talked about everything, but the feeling like finding those spots in your body, Mm -hmm. very, very challenging for me and asking my children where they feel something in their body doesn't even like, sometimes I know I'm speaking with a script because in my head, I'm like, I don't know where you find anything in your body, but then, you know, it's work. It's a, it's a process for me. Well, and I really appreciate you saying that because there, I think there's a lot of us who are like you. I think that's a very common thing. And actually it's one of the biggest questions I get from coaches that I'm training. What if somebody can't feel what's in their body? But I think it begins with the breath. And if I just listened to you, if I could just even give you a little golden nugget to think about when you speak, you actually have a beautiful voice, which I'm sure people love listening to you. And it's sourced from your throat. Totally. Right. So it would, for you, the work would actually just be breathing and even exploring what it is to speak from down here Mm -hmm. in your body. I'm I'm also a singer, right? So I'm a real- No, it's funny. I'm smiling because I remember my voice teacher, like in college, in the speech and voice class that I was taking, which was required. (laughs) I remember- I was really frustrated because I was like, my voice is not coming from there because it was always up here to the point where I got um, vocal notes. Wow. Wow. We've talked talked personally. So when we see each other, we're going to lie on the ground. I'm going to teach you how to do belly breathing. And we're so excited. (laughs) Sorry, that was a tangent, but I, but you're totally spot on. And I think that a lot of people go through that Mm -hmm. and I, and I meditate and I'm, I work on myself and I have all of these intentions, but in actual, you know, in my day-to-day life, it is still not, I am not fluent in that language. And I, I think it's important to know so that mm -hmm. we can help ourselves and our kids be more fluent. As I say this, I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) But, but here's the thing. Here's the reason why I do the body work. So it might enroll you into maybe exploring that a little more. I believe that beliefs are actually in the body, Mm. not in the brain. And I think that when we're talking about overcoming core patterns and the patterns being, I always seem to wind up with narcissists, or I always seem to get into situations where the person I'm with is emotionally unavailable to me, you know, Mm -hmm. very painful things. And, you know, you, you're not a person who's new to personal development. I mean, these patterns have stayed with me and for many years, even though I was in years of therapy. Right, right. Right, all sorts of work. So I'm talking about disappearing the pattern. Mm. And I think that's what I'm saying. Breakups can actually be the catalyst for disappearing the pattern. And so, but but you have to go down into where the belief is in your body. So I like to say, you know, we think that beliefs are kind of a thought system. They're not, they're actually more like an energy. And if you think about walking into a room full of people, maybe 
or, or, or let's say you're, you're, you're at a party and you're, you're, you know, kind of a happening party and you look up and somebody walks through the door, you can kind of tell without speaking to them, looking at them, hearing their voice, whether they live in a friendly universe or a dangerous one. Okay. That's belief. That's what is that? Well, they walked in with hunched shoulders. They're a furry brow. They're kind of looking down. They've got their arms crossed. Like it's all in their body, right? So our beliefs live there. And what we're doing from that center is we're showing up in ways that literally perpetuate the story. So when you're talking about waking up from, and and let's stay with this person, right? The I'm not safe story. Other Uh people have ill intent and, you know, people are dangerous to get too close. That's, by the way, love avoidance story. So if you're there and you can find where that is in your body, that hurt four-year-old that's walking around with their arms crossed, still in kind of reaction to growing up in a crazy home that was volatile at any given moment. Number one, you can start to mentor that self with compassion and love. And number two, you can start to wake up to a different center, which is really that I I have the power to learn how to keep myself safe. I can grow my discernment. I can pace my relationships better. I can learn how to set boundaries. You know, I'm a great learner and I don't have to put up a wall. I can actually learn how to have good boundaries. So, So that's the conversation that needs to happen internally to graduate. And then of course, you know, you're, you're now off and running, happily learning good boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. taking a class or workshop or coming to your podcast. And, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to take a little break so that I can tell you about my sponsors. I love Gemist and Gemist is sponsoring this episode, my favorite hair care sponsor. There's even more to love now. In case you don't remember, Gemist is a science-backed hair care that uses your hair data to match you with products. And after taking a two-minute quiz, I matched with Shampoo 5 and Conditioner 12 and their brand new Cream Styler. So I've been hooked on the shampoo and conditioner for months, but the Cream Styler was new to me. The Cream Styler includes a patented UV protection blend, so it's perfect for summer, and it hydrates to increase softness and help control and tame my hair. Is it magic? No, it is science. And bonus, you can also save money by subscribing and you will never be left in the shower with empty bottles again. Did I mention that Gemist is also woman-owned, which I love? It's a subscription service, so you can save 20% on every order with Smart Subscribe, and you get free shipping based on your hair length and washing frequency, which is just so cool. And the ingredients are sulfate-free, paraben-free, dye-free, never tested on animals, and manufactured in the U.S. If you're ready to have the best hair ever, try Gemist. Right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner and Styler Smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% on each order. So this is an amazing deal. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it by next week. Just visit Gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter Raising Good Humans at the checkout for 20% off your subscription and free two-day shipping. That's gemist.com, 
G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter Raising Good Humans at checkout to get the best hair of your life. Summer is here and it is meant for freedom and being outside and all the fun stuff we associate with summer. But there are moments when you need a little break and you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee and give your kid something to do with the materials that are already available and something that will really engage them. So why not gift your young innovators a super cool STEAM project to celebrate that there's no school over the summer? With Kiwi subscription, your child gets a crate full of science and art projects every month for trailblazing toddlers or more experienced explorers and every stage in between. We got the bubble machine, which is actually a bubble machine. You could explore bubble chemistry and create the machine that makes the bubbles, which is just so fun because who doesn't love bubbles in the summertime? And it's hard to find creative ways to keep kids busy and screen-free, especially over the summer. So while I'm a huge advocate of running around free play and kids coming up with everything, it is really nice that Kiwi does the legwork for you so that you can spend more quality time tackling the projects that you want to together, separately, or anything in between. And there's something for kids of all ages from tots to teens. With KiwiCo, there's something for every kid or kid at heart every month. Get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com slash humans. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash humans. At Ancient Nutrition, they have one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. That drives them to create whole food nutritional products that are made with real ingredients for real results. Every product is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations. And when combined with today's modern research, it's awesome. Ancient nutrition believes proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients that your body can use. That's why they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. It's why they do everything they can to create products that your body can easily digest and absorb. Every one of the products has a purpose. The fan favorite and my morning drink is the multi-collagen protein. So if you're looking for a great place to start, this is it. The multi-collagen protein is made with clinically studied ingredients, including five types of collagen. And it's so easy to stir. You just scoop it into your morning coffee. It is tasteless. It dissolves right away, unflavored, and it gives you so much bang for your buck. So go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code HUMANS for 20% off your first Ancient Nutrition purchase. If you're looking to revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, do it with clinically studied ingredients. Use the code HUMANS for 20% off at store.draxe.com, S-T-O-R-E dot D-R-A-X-E dot com. 
Hi, I'm Ali Webb, the founder of Drybar. Hey, I'm Adrian Kaler, the founder of Take New Ground. Previously on Raising the Bar, Michael and I learned how founders moved from idea to scale. In this new season, we'll be exploring the inner world of an entrepreneur, the juicy stuff. Suing a vision brings up fear and personal challenges, the stuff that nobody likes to talk about. So we dive into what it takes to overcome the obstacles that make most people quit. This is a study on perseverance. Adrian is a coach for select executives. I love his brilliant mind and deep love for people, including me. So if you're starting a business and already want out, tune in. You might not be as alone as you think. So the first three steps of conscious uncoupling are all internal. Four and five are basically about setting an intention for a new kind of future, you know, and and you're doing it, of course, while you're grieving the loss of the old future. So I, I don't say that lightly. That's not an easy thing. But if the best you can do is say, you know, that we're that we, I mean, it started with my husband and I, Mark, when we when we divorced after eleven years, we just spontaneously. We're talking, we said, well, we're really committed to that our daughter have a happy childhood. So what would that take? That was our intention, that our children have a happy childhood. Wonderful. I was going to say, can you give an example of an intention? And that was, there you go. Yeah, that we are, that we are able to, you know, clear the air between us so that we're not walking around like little time bombs in the field. And, uh, you know, you have to understand the children are energy sponges. So if you commit to our, our daughter has a happy childhood, number one, she's held in a family, even though the family's changing structure, she's still held in that family. Uh, we're working together in harmony with each other. We're not asking our children to do the work that we're unwilling to do to clear things and make things okay. We're not putting our children in the middle. We're not asking them to take sides. We're not disparaging each other. So you really have to do your forgiveness work. I forgive myself, I forgive the other person. But forgiveness is kind of the last stage of the process. Things Mm -hmm. have to happen beforehand. And and basically what needs to happen is uh, an amends. And either you're going to make an amends to yourself, I will never show up this way again, and I get the consequence of my codependent behavior, or overgiving to try and get someone to love me, or whatever it was that I was doing. Um, and I'm going to make an amends to myself because sometimes the other person isn't going to make an amends, but it's kind of finding a way. And, and f- step four is actually called becoming a love alchemist. It's finding a way to take the things that are toxic and transform them so that there's clear field between you and maybe even a sense of generosity and the beginning of a new form of family. And I think it's important to remember that when we're building this new form of family, that you know, just like any, if you're, if you're if you're starting any kind of relationship, you have to invest in that relationship. You take someone to dinner, you ask them how they are, you are friendly, you pick something up for them at the market, like you do kind things. That's how we form goodwill in any relationship. So particularly if you're transitioning out of a marriage, there's been devastating, hurt feelings, there's fear that's coming up, any act of generosity to move your family into its new form. It's a discipline, but it's one that so pays off in the long run. You know, I learned this in the beginning, really because when Mark and I were sitting in our mediator's office, I had written the book Calling in the One, and I had ongoing annual royalties from that book. He deserved to have 10% of them. 
that would have been his portion in our divorce for the for the life of that book, which continues to sell. It continues to be a bestseller. But he he just looked thoughtful for a moment. And then he looked up and he surprised the mediator and myself. He said, I, I don't want any of those royalties. Catherine worked really hard on that book. She deserves to keep all the royalties. And I, 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 it almost makes me cry when I think of it now. It was so kind. It came from nothing but kindness. There was no strategy. He wasn't trying to manipulate it. It was a very pure gesture of generosity. And uh, it really started a culture between us. And then here, here was the test. Two months later, he had moved into his own apartment. We were just, you know, in that place where it's a struggle to have two households on the mm-hmm. same amount of money you ran one on. There's always mm-hmm. that transition. So there was a little bit of scarcity in the field, a little bit of fear, anxiety. He calls me, he says, I lost my job today. And my first instinct was to say something encouraging. I'm sure you'll find another one. But as soon as I got off the phone, I started to think, oh my gosh, he's not going to be able to pay me child support now. Mm-hmm. And I went into almost a panic. And I kind of wrestled with it because what I wanted to do was call him and say, look, you got to keep paying child support. I don't know how you're going to figure that one out, but you'd better do that. That was my first instinct. But sure. I stayed with it. And I didn't do it. And I wrestled with it for several hours. Here's what I got to. Now, I'm fortunate enough to be somewhat entrepreneurial, right? At the time, I was in private practice as a psychotherapist. I was an author. I just thought, you know, there's got to be a hundred ways to make more money. There's only one father my daughter's ever going to have. And I called him and I said, don't pay me any child support while you're unemployed. We'll figure it out together. So that was the culture we created. And that's the foundation of conscious uncoupling. And I'm so happy to say that, you know, we still, my my daughter's in college now, we still co-parent really well. She has some issues, but they're not related to her divorce. They're more related (laughs) to her weight or her, you know, her, her study issues, her, the way her brain is was made, you know, all sorts of, you know, some learning disability stuff. So she's got some stuff and it's a good thing that we're a team. She doesn't play us off each other, Mm -hmm. talk on a regular basis, you know, and we're friendly with each other's new partners. And what happens, and that is such a touching story. That was very moving. Just the way you walked through how both of you did such a kind gesture and how it shifted how I'm imagining what your experience was like, because that was, those were such concrete, beautiful gestures. And of course, blessings to be able to make those gestures. Um, But what happens or does it happen? My sneaking suspicion is it probably does for everyone. When, even when you're on that path, you fall off a bit and how do you repair Yeah, it's a beautiful question. So everybody falls off the path. Conscious uncoupling is an ideal to aspire to. That's why I call it the bumpers at the bowling alley. Ah, right. Because you're you're just about to go in the gutter and then you get like turned around again. No, that's great. And and I think that that wonderful pitch that Gwyneth and Chris gave missed out on the parts, these parts where it's not all, you know. Yeah, yeah. Glorious. Exactly. 
you know, and, and truthfully, most people go through it alone. That's the other thing. That was going to be my next question. They, they don't so, go through yeah. it together. Even if they go through it together, they go through it at different times in different ways. They, they don't, they're not really together in it. Yeah. So that, that that's a good. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, yeah. I want to remember because I, I would love to hear about what are the bumpers and also what happens when you maybe don't have both co-parents up for it. Yeah, no, it's, it's you, 90% of people who do it are single people. I mean, just an individual. But hmm. one person, it, it, so what happens when someone's behaving badly? They're bad-mouthing you, they're attacking you. Mm-hmm. Is it very often that person is holding all the power in determining what the relationship is? And so in a conscious uncoupling, you take charge of that. And you are the one that determines how this will go. Now, another myth is that somehow you wind up as friends on the other side. I'm not an (laughs) advocate of that. If somebody has stolen money from you, this is not a good plan. (laughs) Like, you know, friendship is earned. Friendship isn't just given. And you can't just do whatever you want just because, you know, you put seed into my womb does not allow you to have access to me for the rest of my life. You have to treat me well to have access to me. So I'm not an advocate for staying friends, but I am an advocate for being complete and being at peace with that person. You know, the poet Merritt Roy once said, um, relationships that do not end peacefully do not end at all. And I think that that's true. So how do you, how do you even, you know, have someone in your life who's like an, a raging narcissist? Well, if you children, you have to get pretty savvy about that and learn how to work with that person within those limitations. You adjust your expectations, you figure out your boundaries, and then you bring it up to higher level, higher ground. You're always the one in charge, bringing the relationship to higher ground. So every time somebody like says something attacking, you might respond and say, well, I'm really committed to us co-parenting well. So you know, I'm interested in what you have to say. I wonder if you could say it in a way that I might not feel so defensive. <laughs> like, what are you needing right now? Right. So you're, you're, you're constantly steering it towards higher ground. Right. Okay. Obviously you're upset with me. I'm sure you didn't mean to attack me in a way that, you know, would initiate a defensive response, but I am interested in what you're needing in order for us to co-parent well, because our kids' lives are at stake. And I know we both love them. So, so you just, so you have to be the leader of love. You can't let somebody with the lesser consciousness than you be in charge of the relationship. It's so wonderful to phrase that as leadership because historically so many people would phrase that higher response as the weaker response. And well, they get away with it again, right? Exactly. Here's the thing. This is is what the hard part is. You have to be responsible. If you're like with somebody who's a sociopath or a narcissist, you have got to be responsible for the fact that you chose this person and then made babies with them. (laughs) Now, there is karma to that, okay? It's not something that just disappears because you have an insight. Mm -hmm. So you have to work with that now and you have to work with it with wisdom and you have to be committed to learning your lessons and growing yourself in that direction. And you've got to model for your children now what it is to be free and no longer owned by that dynamic. So you have to actually outgrow your co-narcissism. And that's, that's good parenting now. Now we're talking about good parenting. A perfect segue in those conversations, whether this is a partner 
that you are with or a partner you are not with um, or co-parent, what are we modeling for our kids? What are some, some ways to, and you actually just gave some examples, what are ways of conflict? I don't even want to call it conflict resolution, but how do we fight well? Well, I think one of the things that we fall into with each other, that's really a trap, is that when one person is hurt or offended or threatened in some way, and they put up that wall or they go to war because we human beings tend to do that, that to try and work that out, we might start overly explaining, well, I didn't really mean it that way. You're taking it you know, incorrectly, or I only did that because you did this, or, well, I do that because my mother didn't do this to me or whatever. That's what my parents did to me. So we kind of overly explain why we are the way that we are, which really does very little to (laughs) clear the air. (laughs) And we can do that for hours, right? But you don't understand. We really pull on people to understand us. It's not what's actually needed at that point. So we tend to lead with that. I'd say you can follow with that, but it's not something you should lead with. The most important thing to lead with is to just get that for whatever reason, even though you have completely different motives, you're only trying to do the right thing or the best thing, is number one, you have to work with yourself and you just have to remind yourself, even when someone is accusing you of doing something wrong, doesn't mean you're, you've done anything wrong, mm. right? So even when someone's mad at you, doesn't mean that you're bad or wrong. So you have to actually have a relationship with yourself and kind of know your own tendency to go to war because they've gone to war. And then you have to just see if you can get into their world a little bit and understand what's going on for them. So you might say, well, what exactly is upsetting you? And actually get related because look, here's the thing. We do things unconsciously all the time that are hurtful to people. We didn't pay attention. We didn't listen. We, we did dismiss them, you know, and to not have to be right or wrong about that, but to actually validate, I really can get that that was hurtful. I'm so sorry. You know what? Next time I'll take a breath. I won't try and do two things at once. I'll actually slow down and listen. So you make an amends. That's an amends. And then afterwards, as you're processing, you say, you know, my mom used to do that to my dad all the time. <laughs> Or you might say, you know, I'm under so much stress at work today that I really see I kind of brought it home with me. Like, then you can explain it. But first. Yeah, but first you just have to, you just really want to try and talk yourself off the ledge internally so that you can stay in your adult self and be curious about what's happening and see, is there an amends that needs to be made? And you can even say, wow, I didn't even know you needed that. You know, it came up kind of backwards, like a breach birth, but I'm glad to know that now. I had no idea that that's how that was for you. Wow. Okay, got it. I'm going to really try harder next time. You know, and I think that, you know, that's the resilience in relationship. And I'll tell you, one of the things that happens when people do conscious uncoupling, we're kind of on the fence or just maybe even they're on a temporary breakup or something. Uh, is they end up getting back together again. Because a lot of the process is about the what we call missing development, like what I don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. So, right, if I know how to hold my difficult feelings, I can be less reactive. If I know how to self-reflect without moving into shame, I can take responsibility for myself. If I know the lens, the filters of that old source fracture story, I can be more responsible for my projections onto someone 
a lot of times people get back together because now they've learned how to do this kind of thing, how to be in relationship in a way that lowers reactivity and, and elevates their ability to be present and self-responsible. Those are all important things for children to witness and to experience. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything that you've been able to capture in terms of what language to use with kids as parents are going through this process? Yeah, you might say something like, I'm a big fan of Constant Ahrens who wrote the book, The Good Divorce, back in the 90s. I never read that. Oh, you know, she did. She was really a. Uh, she was the creator of this new form because she and she called it a binuclear family. That you're, and she said you're still a family, uh-huh. just in a different kind of form. So she was really a forerunner of of this conversation. So I I'm a big advocate of what I call your post divorce family. You're happy even after family. Notice that the emphasis is on the word family. We're still a family. So what you would say to children is mommy and daddy, we're going to change some of the the rules of our family. We're going to change some of the arrangements of how our family is arranged, but we're still a family. We love you and we're still a family and we love each other. So you just want to create cohesion. This whole thing about broken families Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can damage relationship where things are broken, but when we're talking about children, if we if we let ourselves do that, we kind of indulge in our own overwhelming big emotions or our desire to be right at any cost. What we'll pay for is the currency of our children's well being, because we all need a container, a safe container to belong to. And a break in belonging is is one of the worst things that we can give to them. If their father or their mother is a little bit of a narcissist, then just, you know, model for kids how to deal with difficult people and still love them anyway, but have good boundaries with them. Mm 